verse here, yet she on earth, so we're going to look at new heavens, new earth, the, the church as the bright, shining city coming down, the holy Jerusalem. But this last verse is, so about now? So we're going to be with God in heaven, and even more than heaven, new heavens and new earth, that's going to be the consummation of all things. But yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one. A mystic sweet communion. This is what, even with the Lord's Supper and the baptism, we call it a, a sacramental union, so that these things don't actually turn into the things that are symbolized. But there is a mystical union between baptism and between the bread and between the, the wine where he says, this is my body, this is my blood. It doesn't become it, but there is a spiritual presence of God in these things, just as in the preaching of the gospel. For those who unite the hearing and the, of the word by faith, there is this mystic, sweet communion among us by the Holy Spirit. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. So if you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, we're actually going to um, go through 22 verse 5 because it completes this section. I didn't quite realize that when I got started and did the bulletin, but um, it certainly completes the thought. And I'm going to begin reading in... Um, Revelation 21, verse 1, so that we have this context before us. And before we go to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of his word in prayer. Again, Father, we thank you that you've spoken. You spoke all things into existence, and then you did not just leave things to, to continue as, as if you're the, as has been called the blind watchmaker, but you are intimately involved in every detail of, of all things, and you hold the world together by the word of your power, and you hold us together in the same way. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we thank you that you have spoken and that you speak to us through your word and through the preaching of your word, receiving the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that we will take this from here today, shine brighter, taking the fact that we have been redeemed and that you continue to hold us and support us and that we have a glorious future even ahead of us yet. Even those who are with you now in heaven have yet to see this glorious thing that awaits all of us. So Lord, open our eyes that we might see a glimpse of your gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit as we look at this great picture of the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, reading from the ESV, um, the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the waters of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the word of the Lord. I'm going to do this a little differently today rather than reading all of this all the way through and then going back. I want to um, go through this next part as we uh, let it unfold before us and, and see what's going on. So then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Okay, that's rather specific. So if this is the first time you've ever opened the Bible and read the book of Revelation, you're like, well, who's that? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to go to um, Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, and we're going to see. Now, Obviously, it's some particular reason that he mentions that it's one, this same, one of these same angels. And it's because we're going to see that they're, they're doing a um, compare and contrast between two things in the world. So 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you. Now, see, that's the same language that we just read up here. Come, and I will show you. He's going to show him something different this time the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers, uh, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple. Now notice, because we're going to look at this, opposite thing that's going to be clothed and arrayed and look differently. But this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And now we're Revelation 22. Sorry, Revelation 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He spoke to me. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This is, you can't get more opposite than the blasphemous prostitute Babylon. So this is... The, the, I don't know why I love this word, juxtaposition, between these two things, the world and the church, those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb, those who have received the mark of the beast, those who have seen, who have received the name of the Lord on their foreheads and on their hands, marked, and not, I hate to keep repeating it, but not in some sort of a, a, a tattoo or anything like that, this is uh, symbolic language, but it means the Lord knows who are his. All he has to do is but look, and we are marked by and sealed 
as to who we are. So the angels came at first, and they're showing a picture of the world, the world system, and how everyone is bowing down to it. And there's a spiritual um, power behind this world system. As the world participates in and follows, this is also under Satan's power and control as well. But the church is different. And, and this prostitute, as well as these other images that they have, are, are persecuting the church. So remember, this is a letter that's written to these seven churches of Asia Minor, but it's also written in a way that we can be encouraged throughout all of church history so that we can see that these things happen and occur and that there are spiritual battles that take place, but there's also a God who is in control of all these things, and he's protecting and keeping the church, and that these things are not without purpose. But we're not without power. So now he's saying, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Now, we just recently went to the mountains. I'm sure you guys have been to the mountains, and you know the higher up in the mountains you get, the more it just takes your breath away. There's a particular place we go up around Blowing Rock called Flat Top Rock, and you can, you, it's a very short, like, what, about 10, 15 minutes. You get there, you walk to it, you, you, you walk out in this flat rock, and you just see for miles, you know, and it's got a, a cool little overhang, so you hang your feet down, take a picture, it looks like, oh my gosh, he's going to fall and, and, and die. It's like, there's only a short drop from where it looks, but you can still, it's way out there, you can see forever, so, you know, he's brought to this great mountain, but also in the Bible, particularly Old Testament, uh, mountaintop experiences are where God meets with his prophets, he meets with, with the people. Uh, Har um, Megiddo was, the, Har Megiddo was the, the mountain of assembly, the place where uh, God is drawing all his people to come to worship him, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. So symbolically, we have all this stuff, and the, 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 the forces of evil all in the book of Revelation begin to amass themselves to attack uh, and more and more concentrate away, and then God, as they start to um, begin, as Satan is allowed again to uh, get all of the forces of evil on the same page to attack the church, the end comes, so that we don't have to go through um, the destruction of the church. So he carries him away in a great, to a great high mountain. He shows him the holy city of Jerusalem. So you can imagine it. You're looking out here. You see this great city, Jerusalem. Coming down. Uh-oh. Coming down out of heaven from God. All right. Different picture. Okay. So you're, you look down upon all these things. But now this is not what's happening as vision. There's this great city coming down from God. And so this is, if we had time and inclination, we'd go to Ezekiel um, chapter 40, and if you want to read later, because I know all of you, whenever I say read something later, you go home, you study, and you pray about this stuff. So Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44 even, it talks about very similar things to what we're seeing here. Ezekiel's taken up on a mountain. He sees this city. He's given a ride. They measure it. And it talks. That's, that means that you're owning it. You're protecting it and all these things. And so uh, a lot of this is coming from Ezekiel so that we're able to interpret these things not just out of, you know, whole cloth, but to say, all right, what was Ezekiel talking about? And he's talking about the end times future of Israel, which we now know includes, is the church, true Israel, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. And he sees this holy city, Jerusalem. That means that's the, the spiritual Jerusalem, the, the true church is coming down from heaven. Now, remember what he said. I'm going to show you what? The bride the wife of the lamb. So they do this in Revelation. You know, I heard this and I looked and I saw. So you're getting symbolism that's being explained. I'm going to show you the bride. Now we know who is the bride, who is the wife of Christ. 
the church. So then he looks and says, I'm going to show you this. And he shows him this holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what is the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from God? The church. So it's another image of the church. And he's showing us it's this great holy city. And in verse 11, this city having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Okay, so it's, it's not just... It's enough that you're on the top of a mountain and this huge city starts to come down from heaven, but this is full of the glory of God. And so another thing that is important to recognize about the city coming down from heaven and being the church is it's not like I looked down and I saw the people and they were doing everything I told them to do and they're building this church and they're getting it bigger and bigger and it's growing up higher and higher and look at how good they do. Let me come down and bless these people because they've done such a wonderful job. And so you must be born from above. You must be born again. This was Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And it's like faith is a gift freely given lest anyone should boast. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He does say that he is um, crushing Satan's head under our feet. So he is using us in all these ways, but it's always through his spirit. It's always through God, what he's doing in and through us and by us in his power and his purposes and his time to build his church. And now you see is why it's coming down from heaven, coming down from heaven adorned and it's beautiful. It's crystal. It has the, it, the glory of God. It's radiant. It's like a most rare jewel, jasper, clear crystal, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the, and the gates 12 angels and on the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed and on the three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb so now we get this other, this great high wall. So why would there be a wall around this city? And in the ancient east, in the ancient cities then, um, most cities had walls. And they were for protection because enemies would come and if you didn't want to just be wide open. And, but you had gates where people could come. The gates were guarded. And here we see these gates right here are guarded by these angels. And there's a wall of protection around the church. Now, there's two senses in which we're looking at the church here. One is we're in the church now. We are this great city, but not as glorified, complete state coming down from heaven yet. But now we're in that now, but there's going to be more to it even later. But what we're experiencing is a foretaste of all these things as we have the Holy Spirit given to us even now as a down payment. We have an anchor in the heavens, sure and sure and secure. And so... When a believer is brought into the kingdom of God, no one can snatch you from my hands. There is this great security in the church that if you're a believer and God has caused you to be born again, God holds you fast. And we sing the song, he shall hold me fast. And so this is what the Lord is talking about. But it also is, we start thinking about recreation, new heavens, new earth, going back to the Garden of Eden, and we'll have to keep that imagery in mind, is there was no wall around that. And who got in? serpent, Satan, came in and deceived 
Adam should have been protecting the tree. He should have been protecting Eve. He should have been ruling in the garden, he and, and Eve, and did not. And so this is what happened. But now coming down, we know that all that is evil, they've been cast into the lake of fire at this point. There's, there's not even anybody that could come in. But we still see the imagery of the wall symbolically because God wants to show us that he is strong, the city is secure, no one can get in, no one is able to even, um, there's no enemy even out there to be able to get in. But he wants you to see the city of God is secure. And then you have the 12 gates that have the 12 uh, names of the 12 tribes of sons of Israel and the foundations are the 12 apostles. So you have the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, one church. There is not a separate plan of salvation for the Jews. It's all been in the Old Testament, salvation through Jesus Christ, as they had faith in the Old Testament, which was looking forward to the cross as it was given to them in, in the ways that uh, through the sacrifices, through the worship, and just believing in and trusting in God, even knowing that circumcision was not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. So it was always by faith that people were saved, Old Testament and New Testament. We're not saved by being directly under the cross of Christ either. We're looking back to the cross of Christ. Dr. Kelly has said that when a believer comes to Christ, it's as if he is beneath the very cross of Christ and his blood is dripping down upon him as the baptismal waters come down and you are saved efficaciously. You're saved effectively by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as if we are up there with him and his blood for you. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. This goes back to Ezekiel. You'll see that in Ezekiel, this angel has this measuring rod too. <clears throat> and he's going to measure the city and its gates and its walls. So again, this is for protection. Only he knows it all. He has it all complete. And the city lies four square. Uh, the length and the, is the same as the width. And it measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. I have to do math. It says 1,380 miles approximately, which is about half the distance across the United States. So if you go from one coast to the other coast, this city is half that distance. Now, you can say one thing. It's like, oh, my goodness, that is a tremendously big city. Or you might look at it and go, well, it's only half the size of the United States. So what you have to do, too, is it's, it's not that one day there's going to be this glorification and we're going to stand there and see this. This is a vision, a prophetic vision, symbolically representing something. And this number is important. This 12,000, this 12 is important. It's a number of fullness. There are 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. And, and now we see this, this 12 um, stadia. It's, it's length, width, and height are equal. It's, it's a cube. And this points us back to the Holy of Holies where the, the um, Ark of the Covenant was. And it was a perfect cube in size. When you, when you looked at the um, tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, um, it became more and more perfectly symmetrical in length, width, height as you got to the Holy of Holies. And so the Holy of Holies was a view of things in heaven, an image of things in heaven. And now we see the church being this perfect thing, this perfect replica of things in heaven, this church being uh, perfectly cubed. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, which is about 72 yards or 15 stories high. And it's hard to tell here we're talking about this wall being this tall or this thick, but the number 144 is 12 times 12. Again, it's this number of completion and perfection. It has this wall that's huge by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. It's like, if anybody ever builds your house, ask them to please use angel's measurements because it sounds better. But 
it's hard to find a ruler that has angels measurements on it. So what it's talking about here is this is symbolic. This, this is spiritual. I'm giving you human numbers, but I want you to see that this is, this is a vision. And so what we're looking at is the enormity, the perfection, the beauty, the, the invincibility, the, the city, the church, even though we see it now and it seems to be, that's why we're saying the church is one foundation. Tons of things happen to the church. I mean, it's awful. Pastors fall. Um, heresies continue. Churches go completely liberal and abandon the scriptures. Um, churches die. I mean, if you go drive through the country, drive different places, you'll, I mean, I think when we were at the mountains, there was a church with a for sale sign in the front of it. And it's like, anybody need a church? You know, a lot of times these things are turned into restaurants. So these things were turned into, I saw one was turned into a bar. So, I mean, it's kind of, you know, looks on earth as if it can be kind of weak at times. Then you get mega churches, you get huge things, it's like, okay, and, and then make people like us feel like, we either pride ourselves in our smallness or look down on ourselves because of our smallness, but we have to recognize as, as the church, we are the body of Christ. You are an, a pivotal institution in this world, the only institution that proclaims the salvation of Jesus Christ to the entire world. That gives us a great importance. It also, we have great strength. And as Jesus is writing to these churches in Asia Minor that are experiencing great persecution, they need to hear this. And maybe in your particular life, you're experiencing, it may be persecution of some sort, or just hardship, trial, mourning, pain, anger, resentment. Um, name the problems, and I'm sure we can have a long list of people who are experiencing them in one way or, or another. And so the church can appear like, think if you're in China and your pastor is being arrested or different parts of the world, you're in a, a predominantly Muslim country and some family member of your neighbor down the road who you introduced to Christ has now been kicked out of their family or something terrible has happened to them because they've turned to the Lord. How strong does the church seem? Um, so you, God does not see by the outward appearance. And so we need to be able to see the church for the way the Holy Spirit sees it so that when we go into the world, we walk through a valley of the shadow of death. We fear no evil, and we have to be careful that we don't battle like the, the world does is we don't go out just trying to cause offense. We don't go out trying to um, challenge every, you know, we're out there. Who is it, Don Quixote? Is he the one that was going out with the challenging all the windmills and stuff, you know, it's like that, you know, one of the things that, that we've been talking about lately is, is that Thessalonians is talking about, you know, try to live a quiet, peaceful life. It's okay. I mean, I really think, I was listening to White Horse Inn, I listened to that on the way, a podcast on the way to church, and they were talking about this, and just how we are challenged so much these days to go do something, make a difference, get out there and be be somebody, you know, they do, and these things are like, well, yeah, but also, you know, and I think as you get older, it may even come more upon you, seek to leave a, lead a quiet and peaceful life, peaceful life, how nice would it be if you could just have everybody going to leave you alone, <laughs> and you can just, you know, somebody needs something, you help them, they come over, you know, it's like you're living in a little house in the prairie, and it's, you know, before the, uh, the, the plot twist happens, you know, whatever the problem is, everything's just, this is quiet. It's just, that's how we want to be. 
We don't need to be the person out there trying to stir up trouble so that we can solve problems. But you preach the gospel um, and you find ways to do it. And there's this balance in the Christian life. But a lot of it comes from the fact of knowing that there is power in the gospel and the, the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. And you're supposed to adorn this gospel with your life. And the way that you preach the gospel is, I mean, here's Thomas Aquinas or somebody said, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. It's a terrible saying, but it kind of makes a little bit of sense because you need to preach the, to preach the gospel, you got to use words. But it's the thing about, um, what's it called? Uh, where you, you say one thing, but it looks another way. It's like, what kind of communication? It's called verbal and nonverbal communication. That's what it is. Verbal communication says, I love this meal. I love this food. And your nonverbal communication is a face that's like, I love this food. I love this food. People will always believe your nonverbal communication over your verbal communication. So you can say one thing, but you act a different way. Your actions are believed more than your words. So we can preach the gospel. We can, we can preach the gospel to ourselves. But it's one of the reasons that you can look at your life and say, okay, how am I doing, basically? Am I becoming more Christ-like? Am I dying to sin, living the righteousness? Am I at least trying to follow the Lord and live by grace and mercy? Because as you see those things happening in your, your life, it's an indication of what God's doing in your life. And, and so that when you profess these things as true, people see that. They don't need to see you with your life perfectly together. They don't need to see you dress beautifully and everything. No problems. I remember that the family that lived next door in, in Andrews where I live is the church, our house and a non-believer's house. I did not refer to them as that. They were my friends. And then another believer's house. These guys in that middle house that were not believers were the best people. It aggravated me. It's like, you guys are not Christians. You're not supposed to be so good. You're not supposed to be my, the best friends I have. <laughs> it's like, you're supposed to have problems. You're supposed, and it was, like, it was like, okay. And then one day I went in, and the husband, something had gone wrong, and he was in there just cussing away, letting it fly. And I opened the door, and he looked at me. He's like, oh. And I was like, so happy to see you are not perfect. And I think a lot of times the world needs to reckon, don't go out and sin so the world can say, oh, I see you're not perfect. And a lot of people have done that. But allow your imperfections to stress what Paul says, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. So in our weakness, we are strong. Do not sin so that grace may abound, but grace abounds as we fall into these different sins. And then that even shows us that he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so you can try to put on a show, you can try to look perfect, and you can do all these things, but one day the pressure's going to be too much and you're going to let it fly. And what comes out of you will be whatever you've been holding back. So I don't know what I'm saying other than don't hold back. That's not right. <laughs> Give yourself some grace. That's the thing. Okay? Um, God is doing a work in us, and as we forgive others their sins, we forgive as God has forgiven our sins. So as we recognize the grace he's given, then we're able to live more gracious lives. So as we're looking again, um, verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. They didn't have a lot of clear glass wasn't I mean, you can get clear glass anywhere you go. We, we got a new windshield put in the truck, and it was like, it was scary at first because it's like, is there a windshield there? I mean, it's literally like nothing there. 
by the end of the trip, there's lots of dead bugs who also did not realize it was there. So it's, now you can see that it's there, but clearness like this was not available in the ancient Near East. Most glass and things like that were somewhere opaque, but here it's just clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. So I wouldn't get too caught up into what did the jewels represent. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but when we start to see this, we know that the high priest had a chest plate, a breastplate. They had these 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel, very colorful and very beautiful as he went into the temple, representing on his person all of Israel. So this foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. Remember how the prostitute was adorned? So this is like real adornment, real beauty, outward, inward protection. This is the real thing. Uh, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cerulean, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. How you say that, Brooke? What? Chrysopris? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> She's our, uh, I was going to say geographer, but you're not a geographer, you're a geologist, geology, right, thank you. The 11th is jacinth, the 12th amethyst, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made in a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, and I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, we're going to see a little bit here is the God being one. In Ezekiel, it makes a big deal about making sure it's one God. But we see this one throne, God Almighty on it, and the Lamb. And so Jesus Christ is God, man, but God Almighty, the Father, they're both sharing this throne. The city had no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb of God. And we read in the Psalms, thy word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. And here... It's lit all the time. So God's always in your presence. The light of God is always around you. The perfect glory of God all around. In verse 24, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So this is every tongue, tribe, nation, even kings from different tribes who bend the knee to the Lord, who have come to him in this city. And remember, this is symbolism to it, saying no matter how great, no matter how small, all these in this city are coming into the bring them into the glory, bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. So you're saying, well, at night, they're going to close these things. And there will be no night there. Okay, there ain't going to be night. They're going to keep them open all day. It's not 24-7. It's just all the time. There's no light because the Lord always lights it. And so these gates will never be open. So you had this wall, and you had these gates. The gates are never closed. There's no enemy. There's perfect ability to be able to come and go, and this is a fulfillment of a prophecy by Isaiah. In just a moment, if you can find Isaiah, it's right after the Psalms, Isaiah chapter 60. It's not too hard to find. You know, Psalms kind of right there towards the center of the Bible, and Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11. I just want you to kind of see it and read it to know this is a fulfillment of prophecy as in the Old Testament, you know, you're looking forward not just to restoration of Israel, but restoration of all things. And so Isaiah 60, 60 verse 11. 
Well, let's go back to verse 10 just to do it. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. And this is what this mercy looks like. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. And guess what? They only have night in new heavens and new earth. That people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So he's telling us, go back, and this is why he's talking about kings bringing in their, um, their glory, because this is an Isaiah prophecy. So he's wanting us to see that when Isaiah prophesied these things, this is you. This is being fulfilled. This is the joy set before Christ on the cross. He endured the suffering and the shame because he saw us as the beautiful bride being a city with gates that will never be shut because every enemy will be crushed. Every enemy will be um, forever banished. And then verse 24, by its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory there. The gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And so that's through the Holy Spirit. As every tongue, tribe, nation has been brought into this great kingdom, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we've seen this before in the book of Revelation. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And if you trust in Christ for your salvation, it's why should I let you into heaven? You die and you're standing before the gates. Why should I let you in? Um, because Christ died for me. You kind of can say, look at me, I'm clothed in righteousness. Nobody's going to ask you the question. It's going to be quite obvious that um, we belong to him and he belongs to us. And that's why we're able to enter in. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, but those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name being recorded, your name being written, your name being indelibly impressed upon the memory and, and mind of God that you are his and he is yours. And then the last part in verse 22. Then the angel showed me the, the river of the water of life. Remember, there's the tree of life in the in the garden. And even in, in Genesis, I think I wrote this down, Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So in, in, in Eden, you had this river coming out from the middle of it that's going out. And so we're seeing now, like, this is not a mere restoration to how things were. This is not, we're going to get you back in that garden, because that's where the tree of life is. And then we got the cherubim, they're out there with flaming swords, guarding the way to the tree of life, lest you should live forever like this. This is better than the garden. This is the paradise of God, 12 times 12 times 12 times 1,000. This is God in his glory that has now given himself to us because this water is now flowing from the throne of God. And if you remember the throne room scene at the beginning of Revelation, it's concentric circles. They're at the middle, and then it goes, creation goes further and further and further out. So God is at the center of all creation. He's at the center of church. He's at the center of all things. And grace and blessing and mercy, especially in the, in the consummated, the church triumphant, flowing from the throne of God. Everything you need for life flowing from God. And even as we come to his table this morning, he's giving himself to us even this morning in this. So through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life. There it is again. 
at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, the tree of life. We, we have now the, have access to the tree of life through Jesus Christ. As the church in its fullness and consummation comes to it, there will be on either side of the river tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Remember, Moses could not see his face. He, I'll show you my backside. I'll let you see my glory as it passes away. And no one can see God's face and live. But in the new heavens and new earth, in the consummation of all things, we will see him as he is because we will be as he is. We won't be God, but we'll be pure Think about how pure you must be to be able to see God, and that's what we'll be, glorified to the point of being able to see God. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Night was always representing anything uh, hidden, dark, um, evil, things like this, and symbolically, we're saying no more of that. They will need no light or lamp or sun. You're not going to need it because the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is our God. This is the consummation of the gospel. This is what we're being drawn into today. This is the opposite of the world prostitution that we see. Come out of that city, he tells us. Come into the city of God. Live following the king, following Christ, who's on the throne now. But one day, new heavens and new earth, where righteousness dwells, our king will reign supreme and will be reigning as well. And no tears. Let me go back and close just by reading the beginning of this Revelation 21. I saw the new heaven and new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. All this chaos stuff, no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He told the woman at the well, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked for living waters, and I would have given it to you. And it would become in you a life-giving water. And in John later, John tells us that if you have the Spirit, he is a, a living water to you, and out of your life come streams and fountains of living water, living water for other people as our lives become conduits for the Holy Spirit in this world. The one who conquers, and our faith is that thing which overcomes the world, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He'll be my son. And I like to stop there. <laughs> we had this but right here, and it says, but cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur at the second death. Our mission now, as we're seeking to live quiet and peaceful lives, is also, as we're going in the world, as we're permeating all of life, what we're doing is, is making disciples, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're on a rescue mission. We're, we're, we're seeking to save the lost in the name of Jesus Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit, with the gospel on our lips. And your testimony is not the gospel, but the way you live your life is an indication of what you believe about the gospel. It is a powerful thing to see a changed life. But it can be equally powerful to see that changed life slip and fall. So you can't make yourself the standard of righteousness, and you can't make yourself the savior of people. It's Jesus Christ who holds us, provides for us, cleanses us, saves us, and he holds us close. And that's why we come to this table, to be empowered, to walk out of this place knowing that we're redeemed, saved, being renewed, challenged, no matter what comes our way, that's what awaits us, and he holds us fast. Let's pray. Father God, this thing is too wonderful to even attempt to preach about, so I'm thankful that we at least read your word and, and get these images, these pictures, this glorious image, and we don't see enough of it. Just pray by your Holy Spirit that we, we begin to taste and see that you are good. So we thank you, and as we come to the table, we pray that you would help us to know that you're, you're saying when we receive the gospel as a believer, we do receive you, that you're dwelling with us now. We live in a world, we see through a glass darkly, but in the new heavens and new earth, clear, clarity, brilliant, colorful. So we thank you for the protection, for the majesty, the beauty, helps to live our lives knowing that when we fail, when we see things darkly, when our faith begins to falter, you hold us in your hand. So we thank you and praise your name. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.